It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to a new podcast, The Paddock and the Pavilion with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected to the world of horse racing or cricket. Hello everyone. Today's podcast is a bit different. My guest is Richard Pittman, who has joined me to talk about the incomparable Arkle. Arkle's last win was Asker on the, on the 14th of December 1966. Richard rode the second that day, Sunny Bright. Welcome back to the paddock and the pavilion, Richard. Yes, it's exciting. I keep following you. I, I had a lovely, I enjoyed Tabitha Worsley. What a little star she is. Yes, I, I met Tabitha yesterday at Huntingdon. Well, with, this, is going to be, this is being recorded, but we're going out on the 19th of December. But uh, it was a great pleasure to meet her yesterday at Huntingdon. So we're going to take you back, if we can, to 1966. Christmas is just coming up. I looked up and your weight in those days was nine stone 12. Um, you were a 23-year-old jockey. Um, England were the World Cup winners. And we're going to talk about Arkle and your, your day against him uh, on the 14th of December. But what was it like in national hunt racing when Arkle was about and when he was due to race in those days? It was just incredible. Um, the reception that Brani Frost got at Sandown on Grenadine, um, he used to get those receptions when he was going out and in the paddock, when he came into the paddock. Not straight away, obviously, because people didn't realise how good he was uh, until he had done his Gold Cups, etc. But it was, it was just magic. It, it was in a t- an era when I was just starting to get going as a, as a stable lad come, come jockey. And... I couldn't believe the strength in him. I was with Fred Winter in 64 when he started. And, of course, um, uh, Arkel, or himself, they all called him in, in Ireland. They didn't say, oh, Arkel's running today. Oh, himself's running today. So I was just getting going. And to see this wonder horse, I mean, first of all, when he was beaten by Mill House in the Hennessy, we thought Mill House was the next coming of the saviour because he's a great, big, strapping horse trained in Lambourne next to Fred Winters uh, at Foot Warwin. And he, he looked to be the archetypal Gold Cup horse. 
well, it's the last time that Milhouse saw anything bar his backside because Arpel then became practically unbeatable. I mean, his record, 27 wins from 35 races, you know, it's, it's tremendous. When you, especially when you consider that in the latter, not latter days, the second half of his career, he was giving lumps of weight away. 12-7 he often carried and others had 10 stone. Good horses. So it, it, that was the feat, I think, that puts him apart from anything we've seen since. I don't think he's comparable to best mate. He's so much better than best mate. I mean, best mate was campaigned tremendously well by Henrietta tonight to win three Cheltenham Gold Cups. There's no doubt about that. But he still wasn't in the same league as, as Arkham. Well, we'll come on to that a bit later about how he compares or how they compare to him, really. But after speaking to Richard, I also caught up with Sean McGee, an eminent racing historian and the author of Arkle, the story of the world's greatest steeplechaser. Here are Sean's thoughts on Arkle's impact on national hunt racing. He had a huge effect because the, the key thing to Arkle the Arkle profile and the history of Arkle and so on really is television, because in the in the, by the early 1960s and that sort of period, you could watch horses like Arkle, Millhouse, really sort of famous horses like that. You could just see them as easy as anything by watching on the TV, and this was a, in terms of prize money, it was going up because of sponsorship, profile of racing steeplechasing was going up and and the the fact that this period produced one not not horse who was not only outstanding but was absolutely incomparable gave the sport a much higher public profile than it otherwise would have been it was making arkel a public figure he was a horse but he was still there was a there was an aura and it's a real aura when you look in my book there's all sorts of amazing things that people uh, poems and theatre and songs and all this sort of thing. And what, what, of course, the key to Arkell was that he was Irish and he was everything geared, was geared to, to his being a public figure in Ireland, especially, but also in England. And when he went, when he turned out to be absolutely pretty well unbeatable, of course, this was, this was a great uh, triumph for the, for Ireland. And, um, Though I was born in Hampstead in London, I still got enough in my English name to make, make me part of the Arkle fan club. Now we return to Richard to talk about race day at Ascot in December 1966. Uh, if we can go back then to this day at Ascot on Wednesday, it's Wednesday as well, the 14th of, of December 1966. What do you remember about the SGB chase? Well, Obviously, by then, uh, Arkell's record and his imagery was fantastic. I was excited to be in the same race with him. And I obviously thought, there's no way I'm going to play clever jockeys and sit out the back and do him for speed because I wouldn't have the speed to beat him. So I lined up with him. And what impressed me being so close was the fact that he was made like a greyhound. He was fit and hard, carried his head fairly high because he was keen. Pat Taff, a lovely, gentle person on top of him. So I lined up pretty close to him, but saw very little for a while because he, he could go at a fair gallop. 
uh, he settled best in front. And then I suppose he was taking what we now call a breather and I got towards him and then he just accelerated. You know when a, annoyingly on someone in an Aston Martin comes beside you on a motorway and puts his foot down and it disappears into the distance very quickly? Well, that's what Arkel could do. He, he just And he broke the horse's heart, you know. He, the horse was, that I wrote was no good anymore. And although we can't find it, Stephen, I remember riding a horse of Fred Winters called Solbina, and, and I was positive I was second to Arkel at Sandown, but I, I can't find it now. Um, and again, that horse was no good ever after. So he, he was a heartbreaker. And what do you remember about the horse you were riding there, Sonny Bright? He was a, a novice. He was 100 to 6, and as they say, five runners that day. Yeah, he was a big, scopy horse. He was a good horse. We were pitching at stars, you know, trying to take on Arkel, but the owner was a, a good sporting man. The trainer loved chasing, and so we lined up there. But, I mean, that's why there were only five runners, because Arkel was so good. Yeah, I was going to come on to about the, the number of runners against him later. That was an insignificant uh, point you made there. Yes, uh, I might preclude that then because uh, Ruby Walsh the other day said something about Arkel only beating 12 horses in his gold cup. <laughs> and that's because he was so superior, you know. I mean, it's irrelevant how many horses you've beaten. It's how you win is the importance. And Sean, what can you tell me about the SGB chase at Ascot on the 14th of December 1966? Well, Ascot had been a home of horse racing of, since 1711, Queen Anne, but only on the flat. And it was only in uh, 1965 that jumping began at Ascot. And of course, people very... Um, Unused to it. An interesting little sort of snippet is that the turf, the, the actual grass turf of the jumps course in Ascot was taken by the lorry load from Hurst Park, which had now become was defunct. So rather than throw the um, throw the grass, the turf out, they transported it to Ascot, and a lot of people think that the, the turf at, at at Ascot in that period was really high class. The first race over this said turf was in um, 1965. And so Arkel was, it was like, it was like that some famous horses had run there. His own stable companion, Flying Bolt, who was an absolutely brilliant, brilliant horse, won there. Horses like Dunkirk. And it, it was a, it was a very exciting new manoeuvre. The, the complaint always about jumping at Ascot was that it's too remote. Somebody called it like Southport with the uh, tide out. You know, it's just it's, 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 the actually feels a long way away from you sh us shivering in the stand. But people have got used to it, obviously, over the years, and it's now one of the best jumps courses as, as well as flat races that there is. Arkel himself was coming off a very rare defeat in which he lost the Hennessy Gold Cup only a couple of weeks earlier, two and a half weeks earlier, the Hennessy Gold Cup at Newbury. 
What about race day itself, uh, Sean? Well, the fact, the, the, the trouble with the Arkell SGB chase is that we had very little to go on. Uh, it was only 1966, but the form book entry on this race reads, made all, fee easily. That's it. And <laughs> just, there's a wonderful photo of him winning the, uh, jumping the um, water jump, uh, which is, again is in the book. But we, the, the, the source for information is, is very often, of course, ex- exclusively in the form book. And this is a case of that you cannot. I've never seen a film of it. There's, there's no, like some uh, of Arkell's races. Let's return to Richard, who then discussed with me about the other races on the card at Ascot that December day. As I said off air, I did a bit of research on this day on Wednesday. Um, it was the day, Wednesday the 14th of, of December. It was Long Walk Hurdle Day. That race was won by Josh Gifford. The first race um, was won by Bunny Hicks, who I looked up. He was the first jockey for Persian War, and this was Persian War's juvenile year as well. Yep, um, Epsom jockey, Bunny Hicks, yeah. And Persian War in, in the early days was as Epsom. Henry Alper owned him, didn't he? He eventually ended up with Colin Davis in Chepstow. But Jimmy Utley was his main rider, gain Epsom rider. And Jimmy was a cocky little so-and-so. He used to come in the way room and say to all of us, beaten up, squashed-faced jockeys, you're all idiots, you lot. I only ride over hurdles. I can make a better living just riding over hurdles than you lot go around novice chases at clubs. He was quite cocky. And he, he said, um, jumping is irrelevant over hurdles. And a big bull of a horse like Persian War could knock one out of the ground, not even draw breath. You know, he said, I don't need to know how to jump. He was quite, quite full of himself at the time. Well, the second race that was won by Stan Meller, Josh Gifford won the third race. Pat Taff won the fourth race, obviously, on Arkle. And the fifth race, you were on the favourite, Indian Spice, and you came third. Well, there's a good story behind him because he was my first ever winner at Fogwell Park as a jockey. I'd been four years with no winners, Stephen, as a professional. Um, I'd, I'd had 60 rides by the time I, I got on to uh, Indian Spice. And it was the only time that I was ever recognised in, in those days. Pulling up for petrol, uh, the attendant said, oh, I know you. You're the jockey who can't ride a winner, aren't you? Yes, that's me. So uh, just before we go off Indian Spice, he won at Fontwell by 12 lengths for my first ever winner. And you'd think after such a terrible four years, I'd be elated. And I was actually disappointed. And the reason being, he won so easily, I realised it wasn't magic. You didn't have to be the second coming of the good Lord, you know. You just had to be in the right place at the right time on the right horse and not make an idiot of yourself. So, I mean, that's being silly because the great jockeys steal races uh, that they shouldn't have won, whereas most jockeys would win on most horses. Well, that fifth race was won by David Sunderland. Yes, what a good lad. He used to ride ride for the Courages, Edward Courage. Yeah, good lad. He sadly no longer with us, became a valet in the end. Tough, hard man, David, good jock. But I reiterate, you're only as good as the horses you ride. And and he rode well on the horses he got, you know, but there weren't that many. And I'm pretty sure, but 
looking at the records that the jockey who came fifth in that race was David Ellsworth. Yes, old Elsie. Yeah, he was. A, he was clever. Was Elsie always ahead of the game? You know, he could. He'd know the form book inside out and his own horses. Very, very clever man, and, and still is. I mean, small stable now, but he pops them in when they're wanted. And what was he like as a jockey? Um, he was like me, a bit, bit heavy, um, but um, he, he was cleverer than me. You know, he was a canny rider. Uh, he was a good jockey. And then the last race was won by someone who actually listens to this podcast because I know Viv and Des Briscoe, and Des won the last race that day. It was a juvenile hurdle uh, on Louis Boy, and the second horse in that race was Spanish Steps. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Good old, you know, it's great dragging these names up, isn't it? Yeah, Des Briscoe was a, another good jockey. More, you would say, a hurdle jockey than a chase jockey, but that's how the cookie crumbled sometimes um but names you know i'm gaga i'm 79 in january i can't remember i know people losing their memory can always remember long ago but i can't remember locally and long ago so <laughs> i'm in well, a funny old place well i've enjoyed that little segment i thought i'd, I'd get that in uh, because of all the names that were mentioned and uh, sounds like you did as well but i want to go back t- back to Arkle. we've already mentioned it before well what but what were his main qualities he was just better than other horses he could gallop and jump the only mistake he ever made one mistake in his career was at cheltenham in the gold cup he was in front 10 lengths in front with a circuit to go coming round what would be the last and Arkle didn't take off at all didn't pick a leg up and parted the birch and Pat Taff never moved a muscle. Hardly knew the horse had made a mistake because Arkel was such a bull of a horse and so full of exuberance. So the whole crowd at Cheltenham went, ah, ah, you know, when they saw the mistake. And Pat Taff probably thought, well, what on earth's going on? You know, but the horse, that's the only mistake I saw him. So he was an incredibly fast jumper. He could gallop uh, where he was fresh, so he often made the running. Uh, Pat could reel him back. I remember at, at Sandown because he he won the Whitbread. Pat pulled him back over those railway fences, and people in the crowd got excited. Uh, but he was just taking a breather, and as soon as he pressed the button, I, I go to the analogy again of a good fast car. The moment he put his foot on the pedal, the horse's willingness and wanting to gallop was evident, and he just cruised away. Great, great horse. But to, to run all those years and only make one mistake was fantastic. Yeah, so you say, as, as a steeplechaser, he won 22 of his 26 races. Only six horses beat him. And although Ruby Walsh mentioned this the other day, I looked up and in the Gold Cups, he ran against four horses in 64. Well, no, he ran, there was four horses in the race in 64, the same in 65 and five in 66 when he was... 10 to 1 on to win the Gold yeah. Cup. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I reiterate, you don't, it's not the number of horses, you know. If you've got 40 also rounds, you know, they'd have never seen his, his smoke, you know, he'd have been gone. So it, I think that's an irrelevant fact. And how good were his owner, trainer, and jockey? Tom Draper was a little wizened Irishman and he trained him how people train horses now. <laughs> And it, it it did change. 
Uh, it was just his facilities. He used to be out only half an hour, the horses out of their box, whereas you'll get some old, at that time, some old fashioned trainers say, no, they need to be out for an hour and a half, you know, a lot of steady trotting, building up, you know, then a gallop and then cooling down. Well, Tom Draper, they'd whiz around the field full of thistles and things out the back and come back in. That was the way he, he did it. And he wasn't just a one horse trainer because the second best horse in that era and maybe even in today's era was flying bolt who he also trained i mean he, he won the the champion chase one day and then third in the champion hurdle the following day you know and, and pat taff rode him again so he was far from a one horse trainer but a, a very wise horseman now the duchess of westminster who owned him it couldn't have gone up or couldn't have gone to a better a better person because she's so appreciated her horses and i've got some old photographs that have popped up of her riding him in retirement because uh, he he broke his pedal bone in his last race and when he came sound she had him at home and rode him and there were some lovely photographs of him with her on board you know like the queen no helmets in those days you know headscarf and just sitting on arthur's back on a bridge in ireland and or cheshire it might have been um so great memories good owner and she also remember won the grand national with the horse Hugh davis rode for forster yes who was a real old dodge pot and forster wasn't going to run him and the duchess wasn't keen he was a thinker you see and uh, Hugh davis badgered forster he said, he's got to run he'll love it there and he said, well, I don't believe in that. You, you phone the Duchess, and if you can convince her, the horse runs. And he did, and it ran. And it came through, there were a whole group of them still there, five horses at the last. And he came through them, which is what an old dodgy horse needs, something to galvanise it, something to aim at. And, and when you're going through a, a pack of horses, your irons clink with the person next door. You know, you could feel the what they're bred to do they're herd animals they're bred to race just to keep alive so that was ideal for him but so she was a great great supporter of, of racing do you think they ever considered running arkle in the grand national no i don't think they did um as i said earlier about um Huel davis's horse last suspect <laughs> duchess didn't want to run him you know he was a great big old old horse that could go around there with his eyes shut but Arkle was very keen the fences were stiff in those days and she was such an animal you know she loved her animals at home as well as in racing and she wouldn't have subjected him to it no because Arkle was named after a mountain on her estate yes indeed but as I say for a horse to just be have the handle of himself I think that is that is great, you know. And did he run in all these handicaps? Because in those days there weren't the the grade one races to well, race in. No, he 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 ran in all sorts of races. I mean, he won the first in sixty two, I think it was. He came to Cheltenham and he, he won the Honeybourne Chase by twenty lengths. He came back in sixty three, won the Broadway Chase by twenty lengths, um, and then started carrying all these handicap weights because he was good. No, but that's the reason there were less runners in Hennessy's and things, because 
of uh, people, well, no, sorry, more runners than Gold Cups because people thought they had a chance getting £35 off him. And I can remember him once, I think, carrying 12 stone 10. Well, these days, 11 stone 10 is the top, top weight. But it, weight did not make any difference to him. When Stalbridge Colonist beat him in the Hennessy, a little grey horse ridden by Stan Miller, and a good horse in his own right, he was getting £35. You know, it's, you don't see that happen now. It was something that happened then. I don't think it was anything to do with the amount of races. It's what they wanted to do with him. You know, he'd run in, and win a big race and then run 12 days later. You know, they didn't mollycoddle him, didn't wrap him up in cotton wool. That's another reason why I think that he is the best that I've ever seen and I've been racing since 1960. I then asked Sean what he thought was Arkell's best ever performance and also how one horse changed the national hunt handicapping system. Well, I and a lot of other people think that the greatest individual performance that he turned in was in the race called the Gallagher Gold Cup in Sandown Park in um, November 65. He was giving weight to some top-class horses, including Millhouse, who is famous rival, and several other really top-class horses. And he led, it was uh, three miles, and he led. He sort of got into the rhythm of the race, and then when they came up to the, to the stands first time round, he got pushed, sort of, sort of pushed the other horses aside, because he was Arkell and he was going to lead them. And it ended up with him winning by an awful long way, beating some very, very good horses. And it was jumping brilliantly. And um, we thought we had lost, or we thought that some mates of mine and myself would be looking for a um, film of this Jack Gallagher Gold Cup because it was such an amazing race and none of us had ever seen it. And then eventually somebody somewhere got hold of a... Of a it wasn't on the BBC, which was a bit of a drawback. It was on ITV, as it was then, um, and is again now. And it was just sensational acceleration, giving over a stone to some top-class horses. It was, it was sheer, sheer class. I mean, people talk about class, and it's very difficult to define. You know it when you see it, and you saw it with him. And although he'd had some brilliant uh, performances in his time, this was, a, this was from another planet. And they had to change the, the handicap system for, for yes, Arkell. Yes, that, that came much earlier. That came first, his first uh, race after the famous 1964 Jotland Gold Cup when he beat Mill House. And he then went for the Irish National at Ferry House. And uh, the weights were, set, were, were if, you, if you handicapped that as a, straightforward handicap race it would have been just it would have distorted all the other runners because they would be compressed and so they changed they changed the uh, handicap regulations in order to accommodate if Arkell didn't win and if Arkell did uh, run and it and if he did run and it was to me, and I think I've put, written this several places somewhere, to me, the idea of, a, of an individual athlete competitor 
changing the rules of his or her sport because they are so superior is extraordinary. I ended the podcast by asking Richard to summarise some of the other great horses and how they compared to the greatest steeplechaser of them all. So, of course I adore Quarter Star, and Desi captured everyone's hearts. But this horse could go left or right, had no quirks, just a, the best I've ever seen. So I know you've said before you were very fond of uh, Captain Christie. Yeah, he didn't get his recognition he was a Jew. When he was a good horse, I remember him when he started, he was ridden by an amateur, Major Joe Pidcock, who rode longer than John Wayne, the cowboy, you know, was about as stylish. Um, and in the end, of course, it, it was realised that the, the horse was so good it needed someone better. But, he, you know, he won a lot of good races. I made the mistake of thinking in the uh, King George, when I won two on Pendle, I won't track him. He's going to make the money. I won't track him because he can miss a fence. And I don't want to be left in front. Well, I never saw him again, beaten 10 lengths. And then he win, wins a gold cup where I fell on Pendle, that brought down at the second last. Very good horse. He beat the Dickler that day in a tight finish. A very, very good horse indeed. Didn't get the recognition. You've mentioned about best mate, Lascargo, Corto Star, Denman. Why do you think they're not as good as Arkell was? Because of the weight-carrying performances and the way that he did it. it. He didn't... Giving two and a half stone away and more on a couple of occasions and beating good horses, not, not moderate horses, the way he did it under such adverse weight situations put him way above the others. I mean, <laughs> poor old Lescargo never got the, the credit he deserved. He won two gold cups and a grand national but he was a leery old goat of a horse you know he he looked miserable he had blinkers on he was 25 lengths third to red rum and crisp you know okay he did win one later beating red rum but he didn't i mean two gold cups in a national you'd think he'd be up there with a bronze and statue and things but he just slipped through the through the it, he wasn't a friend of the media they didn't like him because he looked miserable and for the for the national hunt uh, racing uh, spectator it must have been a, a real tragedy when Arkell um, broke his pedal bone and then had to be retired y yep there was a gasp when when he hit a fence actually that must have been his second mistake hit a fence over by the stables way um Dormant, I think, won the race in the end. We had a lot of racing coverage of him, a lot of film coverage of him then, and he was plastered uh, around the foot and then up to the knee, and he stayed at Kempton for some days. So there was a lot of media coverage. But my take on that is, Stephen, thank goodness it was only a pedal bone, which, it's, it's, you know, it's right in the middle of the foot there, very important. But had it been halfway up his leg, he'd have been a job to save. So, you know, we had it, We had the joy of him in retirement. But you don't think anything's comparable to, to Arkell? And would he have won no. in 67 in the Gold Cup if he'd have been fit? Uh, one would assume so.
one would have, would have hoped so. Yeah, he, he was just good. It was a magical time. I mean, I only brushed over the uh, way the public welcomed him because it was, it was just a marvellous time, Stephen. And they cheer when he passed the stands for the circuit to go. You know, it was just different. Well, thank you very much for sharing those memories about Arkell. Um, a very Merry Christmas to you and a Happy New Year. And thank you again for joining me on the Paddock and the Pavilion. Well, it's a pleasure and every day is Christmas. At my age, when there's more behind you than in front of you, every day is Christmas. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Paddock and the Pavilion. You can download the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and now on Instagram at the Pad and Pad. Don't forget, if you like the show, please do leave us a rating and review. Sports Social Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.